Philippians chapter number one, we've we've been teaching concerning the Lord's Supper now for several weeks, and uh, we've basically gone through all all the things I wanted to go through. That's not to say that we've exhausted everything that could be said, but uh, we've pretty well covered it all. But I think everybody understands that the ordinances has to do with uh, with our worship of God. Uh, I think everybody understands that. It's an act of worship when someone follows the Lord in baptism. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are worshiping God. Part of the problem is, I'm afraid that sometimes that we Christians are guilty of... Uh, of dividing up our life into the sacred and the secular to the point that we think about, all right, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, whenever it is, we worship God. And, and we real, really fail to look at the big picture and to think of, and to think of worship as a lifestyle. That's what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is all about. Actually, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And, and uh, that speaks about the matter of worship, our worship to the Lord, what we bring to the Lord, what we offer to the Lord. And so our life ought to be a lifestyle of worship. And here in Philippians chapter 1, although we don't see the word, we see the thing being described. Begin in verse number 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wrought not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. In these verses, Paul is speaking about the subject of worship, but I want you to notice, and I, I just said that our lifestyle ought to be a lifestyle of worship. And so Paul takes it to the extremes because he's speaking here of worship in life and death. Now before we get into looking at the details of what he said, let's think about this matter of worship for a little while. First of all, God desires our worship and, and according to what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter number 4, He seeketh them that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So it's God's desire that we worship Him. Isn't it wonderful to know that He is pleased to have fellowship with us? And is it not a frightening thought to think that He is grieved when we shut Him out? When we fail to worship Him, it grieves the heart of God because He desires our worship. 
Not only that, but God demands our worship. You see that there in Exodus chapter 20, for example, whenever he gives the Ten Commandments. And right from the get-go, he emphasizes the fact that he is the only true and living God. And in chapter 34, in verse number 14 of Exodus, he tells us that we are to worship the Lord our God and him only. And so God demands worship. God desires worship. And God deserves our worship. We see that in Malachi chapter number 1, where he is rebuking the children of Israel for offering him that which they would not even be disposed to offer the governor. And they're giving him all of the leftovers. And the whole lesson of, of, that, of that section there has to do with the fact that God deserves better than that. God deserves our worship. He demands our worship. God desires our worship. The word worship has been described in a lot of different ways, and we need to be sure that we understand exactly what we're talking about. The English word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worthship, worth, W-O-R-T-H, worthship. In other words, it's the emphasis upon the worthiness of the one that we worship. In other words, it is attaching value to Him. And so whenever we worship God, it implies that we are acknowledging that, that God is worthy. We are ascribing to Him His supreme worth. We are celebrating His greatness. We are proclaiming that He is of great value. So worship is our expression of how great and how glorious God is. That should not be reserved just for Sunday morning or Sunday night. That's something that, that, as I said at the beginning, ought to be expressed in our lifestyle, day and night, 24 hours a day. We are to live a life of worship. And so here in our text for tonight, clearly this is exactly what Paul had in mind. If I could sort of sum it up a little bit before we get started, I would do so like this. Paul's mission was God's mission. Paul's mission was God's mission, okay? What is God's mission? God's mission is to glorify Himself through the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know whenever someone hears that for the first time, they think, well, God must have a big ego if He has, you know, if if it is His eternal divine purpose to get glory to Himself. Uh, you know, it must mean he has a problem with his ego. He is prideful. And, and you know, whenever we speak about, you know, people and we speak on human terms, you know, there would be some truth to that for us to seek our own glory. There would be something wrong with that picture, right? And so I see why these people stumble at this, why they don't really get the message. But, but we're not talking about man. We're talking about God. And it is perfectly legitimate for God to seek His glory because God knows that in us glorifying Him, it meets our deepest needs. You see, God's not doing it just for His self-interest. God is doing it because He knows this is exactly what 
man needs. So Paul's mission was God's mission, which is to glorify God through exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he uses the word magnify there, to make larger, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly, we can't make God or Christ any bigger, any better than what they already are. You can't improve on God. But we can magnify Christ in the sense of making Him appear larger, bigger, and better in the eyes of others. And the thing I want you to notice here tonight, Paul is saying, I want to do that in both life and death. In other words, from the cradle to the grave, I want to glorify God. So, let's look at verse number 20 again. And here we see Paul expressing his desire to glorify God in death. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by my life or by my death. You know, if a person's main concern in death is to exalt Christ, you won't have to worry about how they live. If that's our main concern in dying, that we exalt Christ, we're going to live in the same way. But but I don't know about you, the first time I read that many years ago and really began to think about this, I, I thought, how do we exalt Christ in death? I mean, how is, how is our dying going to in any way exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, look at verse 21, because uh, here we see the answer. He says, to die is gain. Now, that's Paul's testimony. To die is gain. In other words, Christ is exalted when we experience death with the attitude that it's gain rather than loss. Most of us don't come across that way when we're talking to others about dying and even talking to others about heaven. And we act like that, you know, going to heaven is some kind of a demotion. (laughs) <laughs> that that we lose, well, you know, the doctor said I've only got, you know, uh, a month to live, and so, you know, I, I, I lose. And we talk about it being something horrible and terrible to be avoided at all costs, and, and it's exactly the opposite of what Paul was saying. He says to die is gain. Now, uh, no, notice what he says in verse 23, because this is it, this explains it. He says to die is gain, but notice, and this is why it's gain, to be with Christ. And notice he says, which is far better. Far better than what? Far better than living. You see, he's talking about two things. He's talking about living, he's talking about dying. And he said to die is gain, and it's better. It's better. We think of it as worse. We think that's the worst news we could possibly hear. The doctor said, I'm going to die. Paul says, that's the best. Because to die is gain, and, and it's, it's gain, of course, because of what we have laid up in heaven as the children of God. For the Christian, death brings us into the ultimate intimacy with God. Not only because we, you know, we write songs and sing songs about seeing Him. We're going to see Him, and we're going to be with Him. But we're going to be like Him in that day, in that we're going to have a glorified body. Isn't that wonderful? And, and this is the gain that Paul is talking about here. 
that to die is gain. And so we need to think about our attitude toward death because it reveals the worth that we attach to God. If in talking to our neighbor, our children, our friends, or whoever it is, if we talk to them about death as though it is something awful and dreadful and terrible, now now keep in mind, I'm talking about our death, not necessarily theirs. Are you with me? The fact that we're going to die and we present it as something that's horrible and terrible, uh, we've lost our opportunity to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's one thing to be able to praise God when you've got a migraine headache, right? I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. And you know some people that are like that, regardless of how bad things are going, they've always got a smile on their face and they're always rejoicing. And you know people, you know, that have that good positive attitude, their faith in God, and it shows through. But boy, when somebody comes face to face with death, and they still have that positive attitude and that smile on their, their face and the joy in their heart. One writer put it like this. He says, Christ is magnified in my death when in my death I am satisfied with Him. When I experience death as a gain because I gain Him. Or another way to say it is that the essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ. Christ will be praised in my death if in my death He is praised above my life. Now that's some pretty heavy, deep stuff there. And, you know, that's one of those statements you probably need to read again four or five times and really think about and let it sink in. But I'm telling you, that statement really hits the nail on the head. Christ is magnified in our death whenever we leave the testimony before others that we are perfectly satisfied with Him and what He does. And that's the impression Paul is leaving here, right? Look, folks, and it's not put on. He's being as open and as honest as anybody could possibly be. He says to die is gain. So we can see an attitude of worship even in his death because of the fact that his main desire in dying was what? To magnify Christ. And that's what worship is all about. Whether it's on a Sunday morning, whenever we're singing How Great Thou Art, or whether it's wherever it is. You see, that's to be our attitude. Well, then there's the matter of life. He wants Christ to be magnified, whether by his death or by his life. Notice the words, verse number 20, these words, earnest expectation and my hope. Earnest. That's a strong word. My earnest expectation and my hope. And maybe you're thinking, well, what is it that Paul is so passionate about? Well, read on. So now, also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, and notice these words, by life. And then notice the next verse. For to me, to live is Christ. You see, he had the attitude that we all need And if something is worth dying for, it is certainly worth living for. And Paul is willing to do both in order to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, whether by his death, whether by his life. And notice this phrase, 
to live is Christ. Now you're wondering, okay, what does he mean by that? Well, look in chapter 3. He's going to tell you exactly what he means by that. Chapter 3 and verse number 8. He said, for to me to live is what? Christ. Now notice what he says. Yet doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That explains exactly what he meant by life for him being nothing more than Christ. That's his way of saying that I value Christ above everything else. In fact, he, he says everything else is just dung. Manure. You gotta be kidding me. Everything else is just manure. In comparison to Christ, that's exactly what it is. You know, sometimes I've, I, you, as a preacher, you're trying to get people's attention and you want to just grab them by the throat and shake them sometimes. Are, are you getting this? And, and I've been tempted to use some stronger gutter language in, in describing that. You look at all of this stuff in the world that we value so much and it ain't worth a, what you just fill in the blank. We'll use manure or dung, but, but that, and ordinarily I wouldn't say that, but, and if I'm wrong, well, you know, forgive me, but it's like, we gotta get that message, folks. That's how valuable Christ is. So valuable that everything else is nothing. And that's what Paul is saying. For to me, now it may not be that way with everybody else, but he says, but to me, this, this is to me. However it is with you is one thing, but Paul says, for to me to live, is what? Fill in the blank. I mean, you know, a lot of people put in a lot of different stuff. I mean, it'd be sports and it'd be hobbies and it'd be money and it'd be fame. And he said, for me to live is what? Christ. You see, that's what we're talking about in worship being a lifestyle, something that is reflected in all that we do. We are to show that we value Him above everything else, whether it is in dying or whether it is in living. Now, there's four things I want to mention in this regards about... about uh, about worshiping God in our life. First of all, it's fundamental. By fundamental, I mean it gets right down to the bare bones basic. And, and, and sometimes we forget why we're here, don't we? Do you know that you were created for the purpose of worshiping God? The, the Bible says He created us for what? For His glory. That's what worship is all about, giving Him the glory that's due to His name. That's worship. Right there. And that's the purpose for which you and I have been created. And so we can't say that we have truly lived life on its highest level unless it's a life of worship to the Lord. It doesn't get any more fundamental than that. Nothing is more basic fundamental than worship God. Regardless of what else we do in life, if we don't live a lifestyle of worship, then we're majoring on minors. So it's fundamental. Secondly, the, 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 life, the life of worshiping God is focused on God. In other words, it's always God-centered. When we worship Him, we focus on Him. 
Now that causes us to view everything else differently. The problems that we face, the duties that we do, the songs that we sing, the money we give, everything, everything is different when it's related to God. Are you with me? It's all different because it relates to God. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I say next because you need to think this through. Worship is an end to itself. Worship is an end to itself. Now, a lot of the religious stuff we do is a means to an end. It's not, and sometimes, I just mentioned majoring on minors, and sometimes in church, you know, we, <laughs> Uh, we, we make something the end of something when in reality it ought to be only the means to an end. But in worship it is the means to the end. And, and by that, I simply mean this, that we don't worship God to gain something else. We don't worship God, if it's real worship, true worship, we don't worship God in order to get something out of it. Now, we do get something out of it, don't misunderstand me. I mean, I can't think of anything more wonderful and refreshing and helpful and exciting and and, and is necessary as worship in my life. I get something out of worship. You do when you really worship God. But you haven't really worshipped God if what you're doing is for the sake of getting something out of it. I get so sick and tired of hearing people say, yeah, I left that church over there. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. Well, you probably won't get anything out of it here either then. You know, because most of the time we get out of it what we put in it. And we don't worship God for what we get out of it, you see. Somebody says, well, you know, I, I, I worship God because it, it's, oh, I find such peace when I worship God. Well, I do too. But if that's the only reason you worship God, you're there for the wrong reason. You say, but it just makes me feel so good about myself. Or you might, you might say, you know, worshiping God helps me solve my problems. Help me, it helps me deal with my emotional issues and on and on and on. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, you know, worshiping God even will help me mend my marriage or whatever. Whatever it means to you, that cannot be the reason why you are supposedly worshiping God. We get something out of it, but we don't get anything out of it if we do something to get something out of it. Think about it. That's exactly the same thing as here is a man. Let's suppose he says to his wife, I love you and I cherish you if you will cook my meals, wash my clothes, raise my kids. That's not an expression of love. But yet that's the approach a lot of people have. That's no expression of love. I love you if you do this and if you do that. You see, real love, has it's unconditional. It doesn't have any strings attached to it. And that's the way worship is. There are no strings attached to it. It's not a means of us getting anything. It's, it's like uh, one of the little courses that we sing sometimes. He is my all in all. That's it. Whoever wrote that song hit the nail on the head. He is our all in all. It's all about Him. A preacher of the name of Warren Wiersbe, some of you might have read some of his books, and, and uh, Warren said, I am not worshiping God because of what He will do for me, but because of what He is to me. When worship becomes 
pro- pragmatic, it increase it, it ceases to be worship. L.G. Letourneau, and of course he was the big, you know, uh, big businessman, inventor of the Letourneau Equipment Company, used to say, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. Now let me tell you folks, that applies, <laughs> that applies to everything. If we just give in order to get, now, now don't misunderstand, giving with the right motive does pay. We reap what we sow, and whenever we give to God, we know that we're going to be rewarded of the Lord. But if my primary motivation in giving to God is so that God will give back to me, I'm not going to get anything back. If I do, it will only be by the grace of God. It will not be because God's obligated to give me anything. You see, it has to be us doing it. Why? Because we love God and we want to, we want to honor God. So a life of worship is fundamental and a life of worship is focused on God. But not only that, a life of worship is fulfilled. Everybody's looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and, and it doesn't make any difference how much we get. It seems like that people nowadays, nothing makes them happy. They're never satisfied. But along comes a man like the Apostle Paul who makes the statement that he does in chapter 4 and verse number 11, that he says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. That's another way of saying I'm satisfied with everything about life. I'm content. I'm satisfied. Well, how do you get there? How do you get to that place when you can say, I'm really content with life? You get there when your primary interest is to glorify God, whether it's in your death or whether it's in your life. When that is all that is important to you, when you value that, when you treasure that above everything else on this earth, all of a sudden we find ourselves fulfilled. Solomon wasn't content with all he had. He wasn't content. He, he was a miserable man. And he spent all of that money and searched the world over and tried everything imaginable, trying his best, looking for satisfaction. When it was all said and done, he, he said, it's vanity. It's nothing. It's a soap bubble. There's nothing there to satisfy. And, and it's always that way for every single person that tries to find fulfillment apart from God Himself. A life that worships God in life and in death is a life that is fulfilled. Then lastly, it is a life that is fragrant. Notice what Paul says in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 15. He says, For we are unto God a sweet savor in them that are saved and in them that perish. What in the world is that all about? A sweet savor. In other words, he's talking about something here that is fragrant, something that is pleasing. And he's talking about those that live for God, whether it is whether it is concerning those that are lost or those that are saved, he says, our life becomes a sweet savor unto them. Well, whenever you find someone that treasures Christ above all else, they are like a breath of fresh air 
to be around. In this, in the stench of this old sinful society, to suddenly get around someone that you can tell, I mean, they, they love God and it shows and, and they are so focused on God and they're happy in Jesus and, and boy, it's a, like a breath of fresh air. That's what he's saying and that's why I'm talking about the life that worships God is going to be a fragrant life in the nostrils of of other people. If we're going to win people to Christ, then they're going to have to see the difference that that He makes. And when they see someone comes along, somebody that lives in this same old sinful world that they live in, somebody that goes through the same troubles and trials that they go through, and uh, they they observe our life, they're watching us day by day, and they see us go through those battles. They see us endure our suffering. They see us as we, you know, engage in our duties and, and all of the other mundane things of life. And we do it with a, with a joy in our heart and a peace in our soul. And we're not like other people. We're not sitting there wringing our hands, you know, worrying about the world coming to an end tomorrow. And when others are sad, we've, we've got a sweet spirit and we're joyful and loving and kind and forgiving. And that, that's the impression that we've got to leave with other people if we're ever going to win them to Christ because then they begin to see the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. And that's why it is so important that we live a life of worship rather than just worship on the Lord's day. Somebody just this week was telling me, made the statement about, uh, about some folks and the fact that they profess to be Christians, but you sure couldn't tell it by anything else about the way that they live their life. Isn't that a horrible testimony, a terrible indictment? And what a wonderful thing it is. And you know people like this. And uh, maybe you're down in the dumps and maybe your day hadn't gone well. And you spend 30 minutes with them and, and it's kind of like they bring a little bit of heaven to earth. And now all of a sudden you're feeling better about everything in life. Why? Because they brought a little bit of Jesus into your life. And it made a big difference. And that's, that's what Paul is saying. Notice he is so passionate uh, about this, this whole thing. According to my earnest expectation. I, I mean, Paul's putting everything he's got into this. And he says, we are a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and them that, that are lost. And when others see that in us, it generates within them a desire for them to know the God that we know. In other words, they all of a sudden, they have a thirst for what we've got. They might understand what you have, but all of a sudden they realize, you know, that's what I want. Whatever they've got, that's what I want. And then it gives you a chance to tell them it's, it's all about Jesus. Whether in life... Or whether in death, let's live a lifestyle of worship. It shouldn't make any difference if it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, 
or Monday morning or whenever it is, we ought to be in an attitude of worship before God every minute of every day, all of our life. I, I think that's exactly the way it was with Paul. Uh, that's the way it needs to be with, with all of us. So I hope that tonight that just in thinking about this, it'll take us beyond the observance of the Lord's Supper and understand that as important as the Lord's Supper is, that's not the only thing that's important. Every minute of every day is important for a child of God, and we need to be in, a, in an attitude of worship. Thank you. Let's stand together before.